But I take it then you support the, uh, the freedom-loving attempts of the uh, peaceful marchers in Alabama and these places. You don't get freedom peacefully. Freedom is never uh, safeguarded peacefully. Anyone who is depriving you of freedom isn't deserving of, an, of a peaceful approach uh, by the ones who are being deprived of their freedom. And when black people in this country uh, uh, come out from under the mental straitjacket that the Negro clergymen have placed them in and begin to see that the only way you can get freedom is to get it the same way the white man in this country got it from England, or uh, he says he got it from England. He was willing to pay the price for freedom. When, when you're willing to pay the price for freedom, then you'll get it. But the Negro in this country has never been willing to pay the price for his freedom. All of the price that we have been, that we have been paying in the past has been uh, freedom for the white man. We fought abroad so that the white man in America could be free today to sick police dogs on us, to beat our people in the heads with, with police clubs, and to turn water holes on, on little women and children and babies simply because they want to walk down the street like decent human beings. That's, now, the only way you can have peace is to eliminate those injustices, and the American white man is not going to eliminate them. He's going to talk that pretty talk, but he'll still continue to practice those inhuman deeds. Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to be ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's, and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, y'all. How's it going out there? This is your boy, Dan White Hodge, back at it, back another week. This is Profane Faith. Welcome back. Well, what'd y'all think about last week? Oh, my goodness. Season four is on fire, y'all. This is probably looking to be one of the best seasons we've had um, ever. Um, this has been great. And that's not to knock any other of the seasons. I think every season has its uh, turn. Every season has its uh um, you know, theme and, 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 and feel to it. This one, but this one is, we've been, we've been hitting it. We've been hitting it. And, uh, you know, folks are, you know, genuinely digging stuff. So I appreciate all the, uh, the inboxing and the emails and, uh, folks just, you know, reaching out and saying, man, thank you. Um, it's great. It's great. And like I said, I'm lining up more conversations, lining up more, um, interviews. And so, you know, we're going to continue going down, uh, the road here. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, well, before I get to my guests, uh, or guests, excuse me, uh, this week, uh, you know, have y'all had a chance to listen to, uh, brother Kanye's, uh, album, Jesus is King. <laughs> I have not, I have not, I'm not going to lie. I, um, I've just kind of been sitting back and looking at, you know, just how certain people, um, have been, uh, you know, taking it in. It's interesting, you know, looking at white evangelicals uh, react. There's been so many reviews, so many positive reviews uh, from white folks and particularly white Christians. Um, I, You know, I still have it in my I still have a prediction that there's going to be some, you know, hipster white guy that's going to write some uh, book on hip hop. And, and, you know, it'll be like the best thing ever be like the best thing since uh, uh, sliced bread. Right. Um and so uh, I, I'm going to be interested just to see, you know, some of the articles that come out of this and and particularly at conferences. Not that I go to that many conferences anymore, but I'd be interested to to hear and see, you know, how many workshops will be put up on, you know, regarding Kanye uh, and how many people will ignore uh, about the past 20 years worth of work uh, on hip hop and religion uh, in that in the midst of that. And how many folks will actually revert back to just looking at lyrics and, you know, like studying. Oh, he said Jesus is king here. And oh, my gosh. And people losing their shit over that. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I just kind of been, you know, standing back 
you know, listen to that. I'm sure the album's great. Kanye is a damn musical genius. Let's just call it for what it is. I mean, whether you love him or hate him, the man can put some music together and he knows exactly how to do it. Um, and, you know, part of me thinks that this whole Christianese feel and era that he finds himself in uh, was is really just part of a marketing ad. Um, he's a marketing guru. Uh, he understands that. He understands how to get folks attention, um, you know, to release albums or to put out material or to put out shoes, to put out um you know, clothing and, and, you know, clothing line and whatnot. So I am not, you know, I, yeah, <laughs> I'm not taken by Mr. West's, um, you know, sudden conversion now to Christianity and like all sold in other than he knows, particularly in the black community, you know, folks will embrace him in this community, uh, especially if he's talking, you know, that Jesus talk. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I'm interested, you know, time will tell just how, uh, you know, this, the, the, the album does and just, you know, what people think of it. I am, like I said, I, I've, I, I have yet to hear it. I'm going to hear it. I will. I promise you, you know it. And, uh, I'll probably have some guests on here talking about it, but, um, I've just been kind of blown away by just the amount of positive reviews from, you know, from white America. And it's just, it just, but well, I should say white Christians, let me distinguish that white Christians, uh, white evangelicals who are loving this and they're just like eating it up. And I'm like, hmm, interesting. And I'm, and, you know, and, and and especially somebody like Kanye with his history um, and, you know, what he said and what he's done and, 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 and the likes of that. So, you know, I've read a couple of different articles about, you know, this is just him, you know, uh, uh, manifesting, you know, his own stress disorder and whatnot. And it's him, you know, dealing with, um, uh, you know, his own, like, you know, like people are just basically talking about his own trauma and that, how that's, that's been affected. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know. I don't know the guy. I'm not in the guy's head. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. It could be, I do think there's something, something to that, something to be said about that. At the same time, I, I have to believe that, again you know he's about selling albums and, and they're selling or streaming i should say streaming and selling and i have to ask you know i would be interested and curious to know who kanye's audience is like who he sees as his audience um is it black america is it you know us um or is it not uh, I, I don't know i don't know i don't know so mm hmm we will see but uh yeah keep keep writing them reviews there's some of them are really funny you know just talking about that and um especially the ones that want to get into a hip-hop theology um and my thing is like look man if you white and evangelical and you've never written about black hip-hop or black gospel music um don't try to act like you're a professional <laughs> i mean anybody can write whatever they want but don't try to come off as no professional and no no person that really knows what the hell they talking about when it comes to that. like if you've never written about it if you've never you know engaged with that culture and really done a deep dive into the ethno life history and the theomusicology of of what that means and what that looks like i don't want to hear it I want to, I don't, I really, honestly, I really don't want to hear it and I'm not going to hear it other than to get some laughs out of it and whatnot. So chime in though, what y'all think about uh, Kanye's new, new album and what y'all, what y'all think about, um, you know, his, you know, this release, this sudden turn to, you know, Christianity and, um, you know, becoming saved and all that stuff. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm always suspect about stuff like that with Kanye, knowing who he is and how he rolls when it comes to, um, you know, uh, likes and votes and sales and all that stuff. So anyway, oh, mercy. But uh, yeah, y'all like that little Malcolm X quote at the beginning there? Yeah, that's setting us up right here for my, my guest today, Christy Lorne Adams. Oh, this sister right here. I first met Christy uh, when I did a talk over at, uh, oh man, where was I? Uh, I was going to say Spelman. It wasn't Spelman. Uh, Princeton. Uh, she was at Princeton Theological Seminary. I came out. I met her. She was the one organizing the, you know, my, my, 
you know, my, my arrival and everything. And I was like, this sister is sharp. Come to find out she uh, was a chaplain at Azusa Pacific University the year that I left. Literally the year that I left in 2011, she came that fall. And I was, I, I was bummed because I was like, man, that would have been a highlight <laughs> to have, have at least connected with her uh, during my time there, during the, <laughs> that woeful time at, at APU, right? Um, and so she is amazing. She has just put out a book. Uh, parable of a brown girl i'm gonna let her break it down here and this is amazing this is again when folks come asking about oh what resources and what books should we be assigning and what should, there's a resource right here right here right now christy adams she's a speaker author advocate she's an ordained minister with the american baptist churches she is the Firestone Endowment Chaplain and Instructor of Religious Studies and Philosophy at the Hill School in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Come on now. She also works as a co-director of diversity at the Hill School. Previously worked as an interim Protestant chaplain at Georgetown University uh, Law Center and Georgetown and Georgetown University. Associate Campus Pastor for Preaching and Spiritual Programming over at APU uh, out there in SoCal, for those of you who don't know, and former Director of Youth Ministries at First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens in Somerset, New Jersey. This book, Parable of a Brown Girl, being put out by Fortress Press. It's going to be released here in February 2020, and I get that it's just November now, but you know what? Early sales, pre-sales, get that, put that on your gift. You know, this would be a great gift to give somebody during this holiday season right here right here and i love that she's releasing it in black history month um here coming up in 2020 uh, i had a chance to sit down with christy to talk about her book and just about why she wrote it and what are some of the particularities as it pertains to that particularly being a black woman herself and talking about some of those aspects so Check out this conversation. And as always, check out whitehodgepodcast.com. We're on iTunes, Spotify. If this is your first time checking out um, uh, Profane Faith, thank you for listening. I encourage you to go and subscribe on iTunes. Rate us. Please give us a little ratings. Be great if you gave us a five star, but I, you know, I'll take a four and a half. Uh, I get that, you know, you know, nothing's perfect. So uh, check us out there as well. And thanks so much for listening. Here's Christy and I chopping it up. Great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Christy, thank you so much for taking the time out. I know you're very busy and moving and grooving. Um, uh, thanks for taking time out and just coming on the show. Yeah, I'm I'm like so grateful for your support and um, just excited to have as many opportunities as possible to talk about talk about these girls. Right. It's like yes. talking about the book. But my whole goal was to center these girls. Um, and that that's what drives me. That's what I'm excited about. So tell us, well, and let's, and I, yeah, I want to get into this book. This book is great. I, I would love to hear a little bit more about where you have been, what's happened from birth to now, you know, what, how, how has Christy ended up where she's at now? I know you were on the West coast for a hot minute. We were, I think we were at the same school for maybe a minute or two. I don't know. I know. We were, we had some overlap. Um, I think, or maybe I maybe came at the tail end cause I got to APU and, like the middle of 2011, middle, middle to the end of oh, 2011. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I had already left. Dang. Yeah, and I had, I had heard so much about your classes. I actually adjunct um, for the, the youth ministry internship, so the, the kids okay. that were doing field education. Um, so I would, you know, be a professor or sort of semi-professor, um, but they talked a lot about you in the, in the youth ministry department. So, um, but birth now. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. Um, so the, the quick overview, um, you know what? I always just like to say that I'm a product of other people pouring into me. Um, and that has been the most consistent theme in my life since I was a kid, hmm. um, has, has been mentors, people that I can kind of look to and say, this was the person that I, you know, not only looked up to, but that poured into me that, um, corrected me, you know, that, that really guided me. And so, um, the reason why I chose this particular career path, not just as a minister, but just as a, a person that, that calls themselves a, a youth advocate, right? Because I had so many people advocating for me when I was a kid. Um, and it really started off in the church, to be honest. Yeah. 
So my family, we, um, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. So we started off there for uh, a few years of my life. And then elementary school, um, we, we came over to New Jersey and um, the, the most profound experience that I, that I had growing up in New Jersey that I can think of is when we found First Baptist Church at Lincoln Gardens okay. um, in Somerset. And, um, and my family joined. And not only did they join, but we were very active. They were in leadership there um, as deacon. My dad was a deacon. My mom was a deaconess. But my mom also um, did a lot in the youth ministry, um, was one of the directors at one point. Um, and so as a result, my brother and I were very active in the youth ministry, but pastor stories, when he got to the church, his whole platform, um, one of the main components was youth development Okay. Um, and beyond spiritual, also educational, all of that holistic youth development. So he, he poured a lot of resources and energy and time into not just building the youth ministry, but the youth in the community. So my whole adolescence and teenage years you know, of course, I had great experiences in, in, in my school system. Well, I didn't have so great experience. I actually went to, I'm not going to say where, but my public school system was um, a majority white. And so as a result, you know, at the time, just being like one of a handful of black girls and even the, you know, the ones that were there, we were in competition with one another. Um, so those experiences were always really difficult for me. So the church really was a good foundation um, coming back there, um, being around like our people, people that look like me. Um, and so, um, so my school experiences were okay, but my, my church experiences and, and being a part of the youth ministry was just really important. So mentors and, um, youth pastors, youth interns, all of that, they were, they would range from adults, older adults to, uh, teenagers. You know, when I was just maybe like 11 or 12, uh, there was a young man named Ty Husbands who was a few, few years older than me. That was one of the youth leaders in the youth ministry. That's hmm. who I went to, you know? So, um, so that happened all the way to college. And when I got to college, I felt like something was missing. Hmm. You know? Um, my freshman year was great, but I felt like I was just like, just roaming, just sort of on my own. Um, and, I had a good experience, but I was like, man, I, I felt like the church was a great like accountability system for me, right? Even though my family like sort of like they were the ones that drove us there and made that decision to uh, for us to be active participants, I didn't have that element anymore of anybody making me go anywhere, making me do anything. So I was like, well, I don't, I don't have it, so I don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. At the end of my freshman year, I was like, I feel like I need to be doing something, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Connected some way, I need to be pouring back in. And my church also is really big on community development. And so I'm like, man, we're in North Philly. Like, I we need to be doing something, you know? I need to be out volunteering. And so I um, was teaching GED classes for AmeriCorps for a while, was doing Big Brother, Big Sister. It was just in my blood. It wasn't mm. because I was trying to be, you know, somebody. It was just, this is what we do, it's the way of life, <laughs> you know? Um, and so that stuck with me. And so even though I was an advertising major, um, because I just wanted to go work on wall street and all that really what was at my core was me wrestling with questions around my faith. Um, because that's when I really feel like I really came to my faith was in college when I was able to be like, why am I doing this again? You know, and exploring those things, um, on my own and in community. I did things like join the gospel choir, et cetera. Um, but for the most part, I was like, I really want to to have that effect on another young person's life that um, so many people had an effect on mine. So essentially, that's sort of in a nutshell of like what the, the foundation was. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And then from college, um, really just started exploring what that would look like career wise, because it was just a lifestyle. Mm. I didn't think it would translate into something beyond that. I worked for um, our church's community community development corporation for a while after college as a youth specialist um, and was working with kids in the neighborhood, but kids in church. And then eventually wound up sort of merging together. Yeah, um, I worked at a residential treatment facility for a while with girls with severe emotional difficulties that would cuss me out almost every night. Um, oh, man. I, I talk about those girls in that book because they were the ones that really, um, that really started this whole thing for me. Okay. Um, and then from there was like, you know what, you know, I really felt called to go to seminary. So that's when I applied to Princeton and, and got in there. 
And when I was at Princeton, I was able to uh, wrestle with and think through, okay, how can I integrate, you know, because I thought, oh, well, I'm in seminary. Does this mean I have to pastor a church? And I really didn't want to pastor a church and I still don't, you know, (laughs) Um, it wasn't my style. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't want to feel pigeonholed into that. So it was kind of like, how do I take what innately what I feel called to do as far as working with youth and young adults, um, but also sort of merge that with, um, you know, uh, my call to maybe traditional ministry, you know, um, theology, et cetera. So that, that happened from there. Um, and then once I left there, I went and worked at First Baptist again. Um, so they employed me a lot. Thank, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> um, a youth director, I got ordained there um, with American Baptist churches. And then, um, and then I said, you know what, it's, I, I, the church was great, but I just was like, I don't know if the church as an institution is where I'm supposed to be career wise. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I saw the position opening at Azusa Pacific back in 2000 and at the time it was 2000, early 2011. And I was like, wow, college and pastoring and preaching at college, you know, I, <laughs> Again, it was like I wasn't that exposed to those types of positions, especially on the East Coast. I really didn't know what was available for me or to me. And um, when I saw that position and I applied to it, um, myself and my boss, Woody, at the time, um, we just kept having these conversations. And then next thing I know, I'm being offered a position in California to move 3000 miles away from home, which was like the scariest thing ever. So that's that's where I was up until 2011. And from there, I've continued to pursue a career in educational settings. Um, Now I'm at boarding school, but I was at Georgetown University and Georgetown Law Center for a little while as a chaplain. So I just, I really like working with students, young people doing ministry. Um, But on the side, I've also kind of still stayed connected to my church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, also still... um, you know, doing some pastoral counseling for, for young girls. I have a conference that I do every year called the Becoming Conference mm. for 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 young girls. And now it looks like we stole the name from Michelle Obama. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You know, but it's cool. It's cool. I was like, oh, God, <laughs> like we it looks really bad. Um, but, you know, the girls don't care. Um, so I've been doing that for the last three years, um, getting ready to try to do one for 2020 now. Um so I try to live out my calling. I do it. I try to do it in my career, but I know that it, it it goes beyond that. You know, this whole concept of it being like a lifestyle has been something that has stuck with me since I was a kid. And uh, that's essentially where I am right now. OK, well, that's, I mean, and, and I love asking those questions because there is a lot of folks tend to overlook just the the history and the complexity mm-hmm. and and the nuances of, of of one's life and so I knew that there was there was some of that and uh, having met you the first time and, and you know when I came out to Princeton I was like oh man this sister she's she's got some sharpness and you were like man I'm out I'm leaving I'm this is this is, this is my last event going on right here and then when I heard from students I was like wait this sister showed up right when I left because I ain't gonna front my time at Azusa was rancid it was horrible so uh, i didn't believe it i it was man it was just i felt like i was a lightning rod all things and i and i'm not you know i'm not gonna just say just i'll own what i have to own i was young and mm-hmm. it was you know trying to I, I believe their mission statement and all these things <laughs> and and whatnot now how have you let me ask you this how have you navigated speaking of church we hear a lot about these statistics around young people leaving the church and, mm-hmm. and the church is, you know, the, the institution of it anymore. What What's your take on all that? I mean, particularly now, right before the show, you know, we were talking about like Gen Z and just some of the yeah. the engagement with that younger culture. I mean, what what is your, what is your take on some of that? You know, I think to, to be cliche, people say, oh, the church isn't relevant anymore and that's why kids are leaving. But. I think there's an authenticity that's that's missing. The one thing I love about working with kids is that they they keep me humble, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And nobody's gonna tell you the truth. Like uh, <laughs> they don't care. Right. <laughs> you can't perform, you know. Um, and that's why I've I've enjoyed these spaces because I can't get away with being fake in front end. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't 
And then I also can't get away with being like surface, you know, they want to go deep. They want to um, engage, you know, um, in some of these things, but they also want to be seen. They also want to be heard. So those, those things are all things that unfortunately, maybe not all churches, but those, those important factors are missing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like, um, and, and I'm all for liturgy and, you know, um, tradition to an extent. Right. Um, and understand and reminding, I guess, young people of the importance of that, but that has somehow become performance based and kids can see through, I think the younger generation can see through performance and by performance, I mean, um, they just, they just want, they just want what's real, you know, and they want, they want you to come to them, um, in a, with, in a sort of reciprocal respect sort of way. So I think that they get tired of seeing that, um, and then at the same time, you know, I think one of the things I've seen with like youth ministry is like, we're, you're trying to be cool. Like, just, <laughs> be you. just be you. Like, I don't, I don't have to come to class with my jeans ripped and all, you know, they're cool with me being who I am as long as I'm open to them being who they are. Yeah. You know? um, and of course, those typical things like the, the topics that they're having to um, be confronted with in society, everyday, everyday topics, you know. Um, some of those things that the church wants to, you know, the institutional church wants to just tiptoe around or stay away from. Um, and they see right through that too, you know, um, along with not feeling welcome for who they are. Um, I think that's the other reason why I think they wind up leaving and not wanting to be a part, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'll use an example of like somebody was on Twitter the other day talking about sermons and how, um, you know, how many of you preach sermons longer than 20 minutes or something. Um, and it turned into, I, I didn't engage in that conversation. I was just like a spectator. So I looked at the thread and, and there were some people that were like, they need to be able to sit there, you know, and listen, you know, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, you're already, you're already on negative. You know what I mean? Um, when I'm doing my, I have these like, they're sort of, I want to call them chapel services, but they're really not chapel. I have these like worship services on campus at the Hill. It's just me. I don't have a worship team or anything like that. Um, but when I was starting them last year, they're on Wednesday nights because Sunday mornings, um, only like five kids maybe were showing up. Right. And so that was uh, like a traditionally what was happening at the Hill. So when I came here, I was like, is Sunday morning really working? Um, it wound up being a little bit of uh, a pull to try to move it from Sunday because I asked the kids, OK, well, when would you want to have it? They're like, oh, let's have it. You know, we like the whole midweek thing. We have it in the evening between study hall. I'm like, OK, cool. Um, so I moved I moved it. Um, and then in the beginning, I was like, I'm going to play worship videos Hillsong, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like I'm gonna do the whole thing because I, because I don't have musicians, and I went through this whole thing, and I did that in the beginning. And and this group of kids, this particular group of kids, um, was like, mm, we don't know that, we don't, we don't know that, right? Um, and then I started thinking, I'm like, okay, how can I meet them, sort of where they are? Like, mm-hmm. I, I was programming based off of the stuff I was used to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? and there you can keep elements of that but we have to not be afraid to go to the source, you know? And so these, these kids here, they're all into meditation and all that. So I was like, okay, why don't we do, instead of having the music videos, that's like scaring them. Right. Yeah. Um, um, we do this sort of meditative thing, um, before, because they just, they got so much going on. They just want to quiet themselves. Right. I mix that with like, you know, a prayer. We do a guided meditation at first, but then I'm asking them things like, you know, where did you see God this week? You know, well, what do you, what can you be grateful for? They love that. For some reason, these kids here, they love it. So we spend like 10, 15 minutes doing that. And then we'll go into a gratitude thing. YouTube is so big with this generation that every single that I, that I have, it is always preceded by uh, maybe seven to 10 minute YouTube video. Right. Oh yeah. Then we reflect on the video. Then we say, I talk through a message, you know? And so um, more kids have started coming and it's not, oh, I'm so great, right? I'm using that as an example because I'm like, 
if I had just gone with how I know church how to be, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, I know the worship service to be, and I'm gonna play Kirk Franklin, and they gonna like it, you know. Um, that, <laughs> um, you know, and then words like meditation. I mean, please, whew, that would scare a lot of adults away in the church to be like, oh, that's like universalist or whatever it is that they would think it was. Um, I'm not afraid of that of meditation. I don't think I'm bringing in anything, you know. That's yeah. what they do. You know what I mean? Um, and it's essentially an element of what we do. <laughs> um we can't be afraid of those types of things. But I have sort of like tried to, and now we've moved the worship, the, the service from um, the chapel because we couldn't have snacks. And now I have it in the, this like AV type of theater room in the library. And I go to Costco, I'm bringing in snacks. And kids like, oh, now there's snacks? I'm definitely, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so that's what I mean. The church hasn't uh, some have, you know, but I think overall it's been like, what do y'all need? Let's talk to y'all, you know? Yes. Um, yes. I don't, I don't see that at all. Well, I, you, oh man, there's, there's so much with that because I think, I think the Af- in the African-American community, I think we have a rich history, right? Of <laughs> church and what the church has meant for us, both yeah. uh, religiously and politically um, and sociopolitically for that matter. Um, in this era, and when I say this era, let me be clear, uh, you know, the 2016 election changed a lot, uh, and <laughs> we, we post 9-11, pre-9-11, now it's post-2011, pre-2016. You, you said it, you, exactly, those are actually two teaching points I use, post-9-11, pre-9-11, and post-2016, pre-2016, mm-hmm. um, how have you navigated some of the the hate, some of the just the, and particularly within. So I'm I'm friends with a few, you know, black Hebrew Israelites and five percenters. And, uh, you know, this this my brothers and sisters there, you know, will, will, will continually be like, man, you know, the white white man's religion is Christianity and it keeps you, you know, dormant, this and this and that. And so, you know, we have conversations around you know faith and 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 whatnot but how and i'm not saying like go there but i'm just saying there's 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 this push and pull right it's like you have a large majority of white conservative evangelicals who say trump's our man and you know and what's happening at the border it should have been happening it should have this is what this is what you know is this the effect of breaking the law you know so you know people should be you know being treated this way so yeah have you navigated and nuanced some of those things especially teaching as an African-American woman uh, and, and, you know, and having a you know, seminary trained and all that stuff. So what's, uh, what are some of the things that you've been engaged with, with that okay. and, yeah, and all that? Does that make sense? Sorry, that's a long yeah, question. I what direction or where to start. Cause I had like three different thoughts and I was like, okay, where can I go? Where can I go? I wish I could have written down. You might have to repeat some stuff um, after I go. Uh, let me see, where do I start? I, I think, uh, well, I'll start with the, you said seminary trained. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we were in our preaching classes. Um, I, I remember at the time I didn't think I had to take preaching. Right. I was like, I know I've done acting before. I know how to, <laughs> anyway, I realized it was more than just public speaking. And then it was more than just breaking down the Bible. Right. Um, one of the big things that threw me when I was in seminary was like, Oh, context is everything. Mm. Right. Um, and understanding your context is everything. And I actually learned that when I got to APU, even more because people were kept asking me when you get to the West coast, how are you going to, how are you going to navigate the difference between the West coast and the East coast? I'm like, Oh, we're still in America. You know, like I don't understand. I didn't get it. It's a completely different culture. Um, and I remember one of my first sermons, I was, uh, preaching for women's night of worship, I think. And, um, I used the example from guess who's coming to dinner, but I used like, the, the film Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and then I used, like, Guess Who, which was that film with okay. uh, Mac and the other guy, whatever. Um, and I just looked at their faces, and they had no idea what I was talking about. I mean, none. Um, and I just remember feeling like I, like I failed, but then that was, like, such an example for me because I was like, I have to remember my context. I'm on the West Coast, right? Um, I'm with these West Coast kids that are majority white at the time, Um, you know, I'm talking about civil rights and all of that. And I was just like, I, I had made an assumption in my preaching, um, that they understood more than what, um, what I thought. So that being said, every context that I've been in, um, I 
try to not cater to the context, but I, I have to understand where I am. And so I take my own personal faith, my own personal ideologies, because those things, they're, they're evolving, but they, I try to, they're, they're consistent in my life, right? And what yeah. my philosophy, my theology, those things are consistent. But the way that I express that in a pulpit at First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens is differently than I express that in the classroom here at the Hill School, right? Yeah, yeah. With 15 year olds. Um, but what can't be compromised is my own politi- political or theological positions or things like that. That those things are, um, I try to, con- I try to keep reminding myself um, to sort of stay true to. But how I communicate that out, um, and in everything is sort of like a teachable moment for me, how I'm teaching my students or how I teach and preach the congregation at First Baptist, that how I go about doing that winds up being just a little bit different. Um, So that's like, I think, one part um, of the question that I sort of want to answer. So like Georgetown University, Mm -hmm. Pacific, Princeton Theological Seminary, First Baptist Church of Link Gardens, all very distinct, um, <laughs> distinct uh, contexts. Yeah. Um, important to know the context and then to sort of engage from there. Another example um, where I also do uh, diversity and inclusion here at the Hill for now, at least. Um, and I'm not the only one. There's sort of like a team of us that um, sort of are over some of the programming or they're working on it. Um, and I know the school's working on it. And so we have this uh, like inclusion week that's coming up and um, it's usually like around MLK day. And I'm like, okay, how do I, how do we do Martin Luther King day at the Hill? <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. I go and ask myself. Now if we were at FBC, easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I had to put a lot of thought into it. But now it's like, what's the outcome that I'm trying to get with these kids um, who are coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds politically. Now, I think more of the kids, um, even though they're more, uh, even though their families may be split conservative, split liberal, more of the kids are a little bit more um, articulate when it comes to, like I said, some of these issues or whatever. But knowing that, um, knowing some of their positions, it's like, okay, how do we do MLK Day? And that's that's the question that I ask the team when we're sort of going about it. Right. Um, How do we teach who Martin Luther King was? And then how do we teach about some of these principles in the midst of this political climate? Where do we start? Okay, no, we're not starting at eyes on the prize right now. Right. Maybe we need to we need to maybe go a little bit more basic. Right. Hmm. We need some of these principles. These kids just don't maybe 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 need a, a, a reminder about just basic human decency and kindness. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, um, when I'm in my religion and film class, we're talking about we're on, we're, we have a unit on religion and um, social issues. And we watch Selma. We watch the Laramie Project, uh, School Ties. Right. Um, have you seen School Ties, by the way? Remind me of what that what that one is. That sounds familiar. School Ties is with Brendan Fraser and he go he's at this boarding school. OK. Um, and, but he's Jewish. And so he it's, it's in a time, um, where, you know, anti, I guess it's like the fifties, maybe, I guess when it takes place, um, and where, you know, anti-Semitism was, was, um, just as much as racism, mm. like wearing it all, all in its sleeves. Okay. And, um, so anyway, so he gets a scholarship as a football player, uh, a local football player. Well, not local. He was actually pretty far away from the school, but he gets a scholarship as a football player. The coach recruits him because he's just really good. But right, hmm. he's Jewish, so he has this sort of like conceal it. The coach is like, "We really want you to come. You know, don't tell everybody everything. <laughs> you know yeah, that." Yeah. And so the kid, he's his family is Jewish. They're um, they're not um, they're 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 pretty much poor, right? Um, and so this is a great opportunity. His family's like, look, we're going to send you there, you know, because this we, we want you to go to Princeton. We want you to go to college and we can't afford it. So you need to keep quiet. So he's got, um, you know, the star David, he's, he's got the necklace. He hides the necklace in the drawer when he gets there. And so um, the, the the friends that he makes, he winds up becoming so popular. Right. Mm-hmm. But they are constantly spitting out rate, you know, racism. They call it saying jokes about niggas, saying jokes about Jews. But obviously, more of the, you know, because it's a film, more of the conversation is dirty Jew, Jews, this, all of that. 
Um, and so he's around his friends. He feels uncomfortable. He laughs a little bit, you know, like he's, eh, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, make a long story short, eventually they find out. Um, it gets out that he's Jewish. And they, you know, you can just imagine from there, right? In the 50s. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, completely ostracized the kid they you know they're they hang up a swastika outside of his room oh lord um they so it's a mess but i realized when i played that film last year because i see i saw the film years ago and my first time teaching this class was last year when i played the film this is my first time seeing it being a part of a boarding school so i watched it differently before and i played the film in class they usually watch the films on their own but this film we watched in class all the language yeah. was similar. Headmaster, you know, mm. the principal. Um, our equivalent of RAs here is pre uh, would be called prefects. They had prefects. They had wow. standard dress code. All the language that is used here at the boarding school, the kids had never seen the film. They were like, oh my gosh, like, oh wow, like this is this is so much like Hill. That looks like Hill, right? <laughs> but they were engaged from jump, wow. right? Um, and, but the film goes to highlight, um, anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. I just, before the film even started, we're, de we're defining anti-Semitism. We're talking about anti-black racism. We're talking about all, you know, we're talking about all these different things. And then they see this film and they got it. They got it wow. in ways that they probably had not gotten it before because of context. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm like, I was just, I had chilled after um, and when we wound up having the discussion after, because I was like, now if I had come at them in this like hard way, right? Mm -hmm. And on top of my experience, I want you to watch this, watch this, you know? Um, they they got they got it more than they got Selma. Let me put it that way. I play Selma and it's important for them to understand it, but they understood this and this type of bigotry in a different type of way. It was like, oh wow, okay, you know what I mean. So that's how I've that's how I've navigated because I I remember in that class we had for the most part a lot of the kids were like had some pretty liberal views, but then there were like a few Trump supporters that are pretty much like open Trump supporters in their room, you know. Okay. Like, listen, regardless of where you stand, we're still gonna learn these things, but then also at the same time. We, we were at a round table. This is coming to the table. We're putting it all on the table. No judgment zone, right? Like, we're just going, we're going to leave it all here. Um, we're going to have honest conversations. So one of the girls, she get heated at another girl because how can you support, you know, all that. But, um, but I think we can all agree is what I would say is that this is this, what we saw in the, that this is wrong, <laughs> right? We can all agree that this is problematic. We can all agree that anti-Semitism is, is real. So what do you, and so from there I can go, and this was around the time of the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, which we had a few kids um, and, and even staff who had family at Pittsburgh, you know, um, in Pittsburgh, who um, somebody attended the synagogue. Okay. And so this happened around the same time. And so we're linking it all together. And I'm like, obviously, you know, um, this anti-Semitism and the fact that some of this rhetoric has become more prevalent post-Trump, at least, right? Even though it was around pre-Trump. Um, obviously, this is an issue. So support whoever you need to, quote unquote, support, right? Nobody's trying to change your political views. But let's talk about the reality of what's happening. Because somebody's gonna, somebody walks up into a church and starts, or into a synagogue or a church, right? And starts shooting up just because of their particular religious identification. Um, let what do you, let's talk about it. I throw it all out on the table. We all talk about it. So that's what I mean by, um, context. Yeah, no, I, I mean, this is, and this is great. I mean, I think this is, cause this touches on current pedagogy in the classroom. I mean, there's, you know, one of the things I, I try to talk to my colleagues a lot about, it's like, you know, we, I mean, it, it, it kind of sits me on the ground when I think the freshman in this incoming class of, of freshmen, you know, they was born in like 2000, 2001. And it's like, mm -hmm. Lord, okay. They've known nothing but right. Nine 11 America. They've known nothing but social media. They've known nothing but a world that is now it's like, it's, it's, there's so many different aspects of meaning and message and whatnot. And so 
Um, I think what you're doing is great. I and, and I need to see that movie. I have not seen that movie, uh, but that speaks yeah. to the power of film, which I still use in, in pretty much all of my classes. So yeah. I'm, I love it when folks are using the films and in courses to get. In fact, in the, the course I'm teaching this afternoon, we're watching. Uh, well, I, hopefully the students have seen uh, Spanglish. It's a little older film, oh, yeah. but mm-hmm. kind of gets at some of these these things. So. Yeah. Now that you're you, you you you're an author now, and we got the you know the book coming out, and for and and for for those of you listening, again, I'll put all these in the show notes. Uh, the book is Parable of the Brown Girl: The Sacred Lives of Girls of Color. Um, what inspired you? You've talked a little bit about that, and you know, to write this book, but what yeah. what was the significance of this? Um. There are so many, and I and I it's parable of the brown girl. I'm specifically talking about black girls, so I try to I make that very clear in the book. Um, and I really feel called to work with black girls. But what really inspired me was the conversations, um, the culmination of of conversations that I've had with girls as young as eight years old to maybe twenty something or whatever. Um, how much they are enduring as young black women, number one, um, having to grow up in a society that is always putting their hands in their, in their hair, having to deal with colorism, you know, having to um, deal with just general, what it means to grow up as a girl or a woman mm. in society. Yeah. So they're against They're already up against all that, just being black and being a, a young girl. Um, and then they got their own personal circumstances which, you know, um, which varies, you know, um, as far as their family dynamics are concerned, as far as their school situations, their friends are concerned, all of that. It's been interesting for me to watch how young black girls wind up navigating those things. When I was growing up, you know, I felt like I had to navigate a lot of that all on my own. Um, and a lot of girls still do feel like they have to, but I would talk to these girls, especially in my counseling sessions, and they would just say such profound things they 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 have this way of drawing wisdom from whatever it is that they're going through hmm. right they they just they make these statements that i'm like wow and there were a few times i would counsel and i'd be driving home and my life i feel like was changed after talking to some of these girls or some of the things they said yeah because i was counseling but we were just really having a conversation together and um and I would just, I would be so moved. I'd be like, wow, you know, just watching them or watching that nine-year-old, how she navigates life and how she has come to terms with things um, intellectually and emotionally, you know, it, it speaks to me as an adult and as an adult Black woman. And, and a lot of times I would feel like, wow, if they can do that, then I can do that. Or if she took that from that situation, then maybe I should take this from my situation. And I would say to myself, man, like, it's so unfortunate that there are so many people that because she's young, because she's she's black and because she's a girl, they'll never hear or be able to glean from their wisdom and their experiences because immediately they just look at them and think they don't have anything to offer. They'll never be able to witness or experience what I have just after having a conversation with one of them. Mm. That's what inspired me um, because because they're young black girls, they're automatically just not going to be heard or taken seriously. Young people in general, I think people feel like they're not heard or taken seriously. And a young nine-year-old black girl, you know, um, it's like, well, what does she have to teach me? You know, and I've, I've been, um, I've been the student for a lot of them. Mm. And that's really what the book is. It's a reflection. It's, you know, it talks about their stories, but it's how I have reflected on their lives and their experiences and how it's changed me, but also how I've learned more about things intergenerationally um, that, you know, black women for years and years and years have been going through the same things. And here's another 10 year old who's going through something similar. How does she navigate it differently than how my mother navigated or grandmother, you know, how I wound up navigating it. Maybe we can put all those things together and we can learn something about ourselves, learn something about them and how we move forward. I love the table of contents that you have. If if you don't mind, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. I just want to read it off real quick. I mean, this this is powerful. It's the parable of the weak brown girl. That's chapter one. Chapter two is parable of the insecure brown girl. Chapter three is brown girl finding her voice. The parable of the brown girl finding her voice. 
No, chapter four is Parable of the Fast. F A S S, Brown Girl. Uh, chapter five is Parable of the Brown Girl in Search of an Identity. Um, chapter six is Parable of the Angry Black Girl or Brown Girl. Uh, and then chapter seven, Parable of the Brown Girl Who Acted White. I'm like, oh, all right, all right. <laughs> what? Uh, how did these titles come up? How did you select these? How did you land on these? Uh, I'm about to be very curious. It was just, I I interviewed and I would, some of these were actual interviews with girls. I had okay. to go back. Um, some of these were just stories that I already knew that have stuck with me for years. Um, and, uh, so anyway, based off of those conversations, whatever the, the, the theme was that was consistent throughout, uh, this, this young girl's life is basically how I chose the title. So for example, like the weak Brown girl, um, there, uh, is a nine-year-old girl that I, I keep kind of referring to her, but, um, who had asked me, she was going through some things in her life with her, uh, her issues with her mom and her mom's, you know, boyfriend living in the house and her dad, she felt like her dad didn't want her, blah, blah, blah. So how she wound up navigating that and the questions that she asked, one day she asked me, well, why did God make me a warrior when I'm really just weak? Mm. I mean, it like, I don't want to say it came out of the blue. I mean, we weren't sitting there talking about the Bible, you know. Um, She asked a deeply profound theological and existential question. Okay. That's what that was, you know? Um, and I was like, I don't know why God made you a warrior. Like, I just was like thrown by the question. And I thought about it because I was going to see her again the next week. And um, and I, I just like, well, because that's a question that I would ask myself, right? Like, yeah. Why, yeah. why am I a leader? Why am I this, supposed to be this strong black woman? But I, I'm, I'm weak, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, how do I respond to her if I haven't, uh, reconcile that question within myself. And so from there, um, you know, I talk about, talk about it more in the book and they can read it, but, um, that whole strong black woman premise kept coming up to me. Yeah. Um, because it's like, well, is there any room for vulnerability and weakness, um, for black women if we're always strong, you know, if that is what we are, uh, typically labeled to be and there's nothing wrong with being strong it's actually a good thing right that people look at us that way um so that strong black woman premise sort of like guides the the chapter um and so i just called the chapter what the girl was weak and essentially what i have to acknowledge i am um i can be both and god uh god makes room for both for whatever circumstance or situation um, that I don't have to pick one or the other. And, and it doesn't make me any less of a child of a God. doesn't make me any less of a leader. So, mm. Well, I think, I mean, this, this is, this is really powerful material. That's, that's here. I wish, obviously I wish I'd had this 20 years ago. I mean, I'm, I'm glad it's available now. What, um, what's been the reception? I mean, what, uh, cause I know you would, did I think email me or tweeted me or something like that. Yeah. You were looking at, you know, different publishers and whatnot. How's that, yeah. how's that been, particularly for some of the young, you know, writers that are, that are, that are listening, you know, getting a book out, like what, what has been the reception of something, a topic like this? Um, yeah. when some people can say, I, and I'll, the context of which I'm asking that from is, mm-hmm. um, you, when I first started writing, um, I, I, you know, I, I had this book on hip hop and hip hop theology. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then I saw, um, you know, Ephraim and Phil's book, you know, the hip hop church. And I was like, okay, finally, okay. Somebody broke the ground. So I was mm-hmm. like, great. This is, a, this is a great time to go and, and have this conversation with publishers. And I would find that publishers were like, oh, well, the market's saturated. That, that book will never sell. And that it's, it's mm-hmm. already saturated with the book. And I was mm-hmm. like, wait a minute. And this was right around the time of the emergent church. If you, mm-hmm. if you remember that, and yeah. you know, like, you know, 45, 50 different books that are coming out by white men talking about this postmodern shift. And essentially, they're almost all saying the same thing. And I was like, wait a minute. So the market's not flooded with that, but one hip hop book now makes the entire market flooded. So I'd be curious how just some of the engagement you've had, uh, you know, with publishers or just folks in general, acquisition editors, what's that been like? Um. So in the beginning, and this is some of the frustrations that I shared with you in the beginning, um, I, I have one publishing company 
contact me just about writing just in general. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to write on. Um, and I, we, we took some months to just sort of brainstorm and I still was stuck and I was like, I don't have anything to say. Um, but I remember Pastor Soares used to say to me, you write about what you know. Yeah. And, I remember, yeah. and I don't know nothing, you know, and I just like kept thinking through that as the years went on. And then I was like, well, I know how to be, I know how to be a black woman. I know how to be Christy, you know? Um, so that's, that's how that process. So, um, when I was thinking through what I was going to write about, I had just spent so much time with young black girls that I was like, and then I, I, and I kept saying over and over again that there's their experiences and stories. I don't feel are centered enough, even though we live in a culture now where we have black girls rock and those types of things. And I'm just really excited about that. Um, so that's how that, that the, premise for the book came along it had it had since evolved but the first um team came back uh from one particular publishing company because it was more than one person's decision Mm -hmm. and said you know well you know we think i I don't know if they thought it was it was too narrow i think of an audience um that you know um maybe you can write about girls in general and I, for like a split second, I actually thought, okay, maybe I will. I mean, I do, I do work with all girls, you know, I work at the Hill, you know what I mean? I work with girls of different ethnic backgrounds and, and communicate. And then I was like, whoa, wait a minute. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. like, is this, this is narrow. Right. And then I'm like, did they just all girls matter me? That's, that was the first, that was the first like, all right, no. that, right. Where I was like, Oh, wow. They all girls mattered me Um, when I'm trying to say that black girls matter. Right. Right. Um, And you're proving my point (laughs) that I was in the in the proposal where I was saying that black girls lives and experiences are not centered. They're not taken seriously. um, And that's why they continue to remain on the margins. And now you're basically saying you're, you're telling me why. So I took that as ammunition. There you go. Like, you know, no, I want to, I want, I, I want to write about black girls. That's what I want to write about. Um, and I'm not writing about all girls. So then I, from there, I just shopped it, um, maybe two or three other places, um, because I had a proposal at that point. And, but my proposal changed up a bit, um, as far as like my initial, like sort of ask, I, I changed the paragraphs up a little bit, um, where I was blatantly honest and said, here's what I've noticed. People don't care about black girls. Sorry. Mm. That was it. And I had to just be dead up honest. They just don't. I'm sure some people do, but overall people don't care about black girls. Like you say, people don't care about black people. You know, that's, that's making a blatant statement, but you have to be that extreme. Um, so, um, I was like, I need what I need as a publishing company. That's going to take a chance on a black girl on behalf of black girls. I need them to take a chance on black girls, period. Um, that not only is it a quote unquote market that's going to sell, <clears throat> but that, you know, I don't walk past Joel Osteen's face on a book and say, oh, that's for white men. <laughs> but I mean, they want me to read. They want me to. They they just expect they're not even thinking that <laughs> color. You know right. what I mean? Yes. Yeah. They're not thinking about, oh, well, he's a white male. Therefore, only white men are going to pick up his book. But yet, if I write a book about black girls, you think, you know, uh, narrowly that only black girls or black women or whatever are going to pick up the book. No, that doesn't stop you from selling his book. You want to get that out as to as many people and you put all your creative resources and financial resources aside mm-hmm. to make that wide audiences can quote unquote relate to this white man yet those same creative resources creative and financial resources wouldn't necessarily be given to this book because it's about black girls right Right. and so um so that was what i was saying in my proposal and i I was much more hard about that and that's when um fortress press two two other um publishing um companies got back to me and they they got back to me pretty they got back to me favorably Fortress got back to me first. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I had the opportunity, you know, you don't just want to go with any, any company, not to say that there's any wrong, anything wrong with any of the others, but I looked up Fortress, who's writing for Fortress, you know, what type of books yep. are they putting out? And I wanted this book to not be looked at as just another Christian evangelical book, because that's not my audience and that's not what I'm going for. Okay, come on. And so I wanted it to be taken seriously um, 
academically or intellectually, right? Um, you can write about black girls and it be a thought provoke a thoughtful book, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can write about black girls and it's a theological book, not just a practical Christian ministry book. Um, and so Fortress wrote uh, or Fortress um, publishes books like you know, similar, you know, and I think a lot of their books are um, and their authors are taken seriously. And so um, I wound up going with them. And so the process has been um, the process has been really good. You know, I mean, a lot of these unless you're going with a particular, you know, for the black people out there, if you're going with a black publishing company, yeah. you know, there's not very many, number one. But um, so regardless, if you're going to write about these types of topics, just know, you know, a lot of these companies, particularly the quote unquote Christian ones or faith based or whatever, uh, are mostly white people, you know. Um, and so you um, so, you know, you're 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 going to be they're They're your first audience for the most part. Your acquisitions editor editor is your um, is your first audience. Whoever's working with you, the other editors that are, are working on the book, whatever team, the marketing team. So there might be a little bit of a gap there, obviously, culturally, but my experience has been really good. Um, good. I was really concerned that my words were going to be, because I've read books like for somebody's like regular raw manuscript. And then you look at the actual book when it comes out and you're like, this don't sound like you at all. This right. Doesn't at all. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, and I hate that. And I was really nervous about that. Mm hmm really intentional, especially some of those like profound sentences that you want to like, you try yes. to make statement and you're yes. like, edit that. They <laughs> 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 have done that. And the ones that they have done, um, you know, they've sort of taken the sentence and made it sound better. You know, of course, they're the, they are the professionals and the experts. So I do um, understand that. But I don't feel like looking now at my manuscript, um, my final manuscript, that anything was like taken away from the point that I was trying to make um, or that black girls were decentered, or that they tried to make everything all, you know, if anything, they were like, um, you know, like my, my first uh, Emily Browers was my first um, point of contact and she would get a chapter and then come back to me and be like, okay, the end was great, but you need to circle back to the, the girl, you know, like, yeah. Back to the black girl that you were talking about in the beginning. What did you learn from her? Like, I need to see more of her throughout the uh, throughout the chapter, right? Um, she wanted me to be very specific and very na- quote unquote narrow, and okay. I was like, you're right, because I kept being like, I kept thinking about my audience and being like, well, I want my audience to be able to read it and relate, and you know. And she was like, no, 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 you're writing about black girls, <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, so we're gonna keep it consistent. Um, and so, um, so that, that's been great. Um, the title, even just Parable of Brown Girl has been the title that I've been thinking about all along. And there was one time where they came back to me and said, you know, can Parable of Brown Girl be the subtitle? And then we have like a, like a one word or some sort of general main title. And I'm like, no, it can't, you know, like (laughs) it it can't, I'm going to fight that battle. You know, I'm like, I want you know, even though we're saying brown girls, not, I was like, I'm open to you saying parable of the black girl. That's the only other option. <laughs> you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. I'm open. And I always say I put brown because of the sort of like uh, poetic, um, you know, descriptive nature of how Jesus's parables were. So that was why I did that. But um, but I was like, no, I want them for at the forefront. And so we went back and forth for a little bit. And then eventually they were like, OK, you know, let, let's it you know they came up with another subtitle the yeah. lives of girls so that was sort of their um their sort of way of making it general if that made any sense yeah, um, yeah yeah and then when we went through like what the cover would look like you know they came back with the with the cover and i was like no i want a black girl on the cover and they were like okay christy at some point <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're gonna make some decisions based off of us as professionals right yeah they were like, we want a cover that's going to stand out. We got all these colors and, you know, all of that. And I was like, okay. So they 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 blew up Parable of Brown Girl, be the, the title, to be like the center of the book. And I was like, you know what? It's cool if you don't have a black girl on the cover. You know, I, I had to choose my battles. But they, um, you know, they wanted a, 
cover that was going to stand out. So they put the colors in it and it's sort of like an ode to for colored girls, uh, you know, all the colors. Um, so I've been pleasantly um, so somewhat surprised by this experience. That's what's up. I mean, and I love that you centered story parable. You're talking about how you talk about this in the introduction. I mean, just how Jesus used so many parables. And I mean, I think story right now is, is, is everywhere, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's in marketing, it's in politics, it's in freaking game shows. It's, you know, you go on, uh, America's got talent and you, you know, you got the, you got stories there. So to, to center Brown girl stories, I mean, this is, this is powerful. And I think what your book book brings to the table is a different narrative beyond just the scope of how we've limited, particularly black women in our society, right? It's like mm -hmm. the welfare queen, which is still an ongoing persistent yeah. trope uh, mm -hmm. for so many black women. Um, yeah. uh, you know, the single mama. I mean, and, 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 and these, these are things that, that are happening. I mean, I, we engage, you know, we work with families right now that I can tell you that are black and on welfare or whatever, or single mamas and stuff. But the point is, is that when it's spread out across, I mean, I think about if Michelle Obama, you know, had been, quote unquote, a, you know, a model and just what would have been the narrative that people would have said if, if Obama had paid off a porn star. Like, I, I... I, I can't even imagine what that conversation would be like. And, you know, eh, so anyway, all that to say, I think this is adding a powerful story to the narrative. And I'm, which is, again, one of the reasons why I'm 400% behind it as uh, a black female author um, and as presenting material that is, that you can use on a wide array of things. I see this book as being used in Bible studies, I see this book being used in book clubs. I see this book being uh, promoted at um, places like NPR. Uh, mm -hmm. I see this book being used in classrooms. I know I plan to use this book when it comes out in my media family and friends uh, course. Uh, and so this is a book that I think it it spans the spectrum, which is powerful. And I'm really, really happy with Fortress that they're, they're running with this. Aw, thanks. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. This is this is good stuff. Um, well, Christy, I want to be careful of our time. I know you are moving and grooving, and, and you know, and you are you are a teacher, and you got to handle business and all that good stuff. But um, where can folks find you? You know, they want to bring you out and get you on NPR, and maybe make you a DJ there, and you know, you can have you know uh, Christy's corner. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, so I want everything but Facebook. <laughs> I hear that. Let me get back on Facebook. Um, I think maybe I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, But Twitter definitely. Um, so my you you'll have um the title of my name, so I don't have to spell it out. But um, so on Twitter it's at Christy Lauren. On Instagram it's at Christy Adams. Um, but you can honestly just Google uh, my name and it'll just come up. So um, and then my website is ChristyLaurenAdams.com. So you can contact me up there. You can really contact me on any of those, um, any of those platforms. That's what's up. That's what's up. I appreciate it. And again, as always, for those listening, you, I'll put these all these links in the show notes. You can go to whiteodgepodcast.com and uh, click on that as long as, as well as a link to the book. When does the book release? Um, February 4th. 2020. I love it. I love like, it. I love it. Black history <laughs> month. That's right. Get it. So, <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. Well, Christy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your really busy day and just having a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Now, this has been great. This has been great. And and again, those y'all go out, support uh, uh, black authors, black female authors. Buy, get this book. Get it. Especially if you're not listening to this in real time. Maybe you listen to this in June of, of 2021. Go out. The book's out right now. It's already out. Just go, just go get it. <laughs> I heard that. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Christy. Thank you.